Our New Testament reading again this morning is in John chapter 9, beginning in verse 8. The Gospel of John chapter 9, beginning in verse 8. And we've been reading about the man who was born blind, and Jesus has healed him after he went and washed and came back seeing. Verse 8 begins, The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. And then our sermon text is in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Several of y'all asked me uh, this morning, are you ready? And I think my answer was something to the effect, I'll be ready when I get up here. Um, Not sure I'm ready yet. I think I've described this before that um, preaching feels like preparing to to get on a roller coaster. It it, it always feels like that to me. It's, It's, you get on, and, and you're going up. So when I'm, when I'm sitting out there, we're, it's click, 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 click. We're, and we're, we're going up. And a few years ago, Justice and I um, had the opportunity to go to Six Flags and ride Goliath. So this, this is what it feels like. And we're, we're, we're clicking up. And I'm not nervous. I'm not nervous. Um, but it was click, 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 click. And just in anticipation of, um, of this, of this. And uh, I can promise you a couple of things. Um, First, this will not be nearly as exciting as the Goliath. Uh, second, this is going to last way longer. Um, so, <laughs> um, thank you for the music, Ty. That, that was a blessing. Um, thy word. We really want to dig into the word this morning and be led and guided by it. Um, and I can't remember the other song that... It, it talks about being led astray, um, but that's our hearts. We're, we're prone, we are prone to wonder, and it wasn't prone to wonder, but it, it has that same, um, same idea. Um, okay, so I'm at the top. We're, we're, we're about to take the plunge. We're, we're going, and it, it's always a risk uh, preaching on a passage it's very familiar. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I think that was one of the first passages that I memorized back in high school. And it, there, there's a concern that you, you might tune out because you know this, but I hope you won't tune out. And this is going to be a different message this morning, uh, and I'll explain that in a minute, but I want to just lead up to it. What, what prompted this sermon. I recently read a book uh, by Stephen Hassan entitled Combating Cult Mind Control. It's an excellent book. It's not written from a Christian perspective, but it gave me some clarity on past experiences and, and things that I even see now. And I spent some of my formative years in a church that seemed normal at the time. And in retrospect and 
because of this book that I'm referencing, um, I now see that it had some cult-like attributes. One of the main hallmarks of cults is controlling various aspects of their members' lives and, and the specific ways that they go about that. And I, I, can, I can very much um, commend that book to you, and, and it'll, get, it'll give a full description of that. Um, cults use what the author of that book, Dr. Hassan, mentioned or referred to as undue influence to control the members' behaviors, thoughts, and emotions, and what information they're allowed to take in. As a result of spending time in that church that was just a little bit culty, uh, I'm now very allergic to anything that looks like a cult. And that experience and having a better understanding of it has pushed me to scripture to see um, what should be the controlling influences in our lives. And I'm not going to say too much today that's going to be different from things that I've said in the past. Really, it's, it's the same stuff. And I've reflected back on sermons that I've given. And I'm saying a lot of the same stuff. I'm, I'm going to be saying very similar things to what I said from John 14, 15 about obedience. I'm going to be saying a lot of the same stuff that I said about being careful to he- how you hear, how you walk, how you think. It's just taking a slightly different perspective on that. And specifically, I want to look at how people can influence us so that we don't fall in line with this passage and we become man-controlled rather than God-controlled. So my, my heart for all of us, my heart for you, my heart for me is that we would not be man-controlled, but that we would be God-controlled. And really, I believe that this, this is what this passage is really getting at. And I'm going to read it again, just so it's fresh. And after that introduction, you'll, you, you can see where I'm going, sort of. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, I pray for help this morning. I pray that you would just give me wisdom, even, even though I've already prepared, even though I've already studied, even though I have my notes in front of me. I pray that you would give me wisdom and discernment and a heart to speak what you have said. I pray that you would give me um, just words to say, to, to evaluate um, just the world around us in light of your word. I pray that you would give us all ears to hear. I pray that you would let us be quick to listen, quick to obey, quick to follow you. I pray that you would be honored today. I pray that uh, you would just let us take every thought captive to your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I said that this was not going to be normal. (laughs) Normally, if, if I were teaching or preaching from an epistle, I would try to pick through every word and take it in order, maybe logically structure things, but I'm not doing that exactly this morning. And this this is not exactly a, a launch pad text. I am going to be sticking to it. Um, but what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to look at these two ver- verses and focus on four aspects of our living that I find in here. And it, and it does connect back to Dr. Hassan's book. Um, and it's our behavior, our thoughts and emotions and the information that we take in. And we're going to look at what God says about these things and brief- briefly Look at ways that men lead us astray from God's plans. And we're going to look at how these four things fit together. Then, that's going to be the first half. The second half 
is going to be evaluating things in our lives, in our world, in our society in light of these verses, in light of how does God want us to approach these things. And we'll see that man often seeks to usurp God's rightful place as the one who has authority over us. But we need to remember that God alone has the right to set the direction for our lives. And I was thinking as, as we sing, um, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's, it is a song from Revelation. And that made me think, who is worthy? Who is worthy? Who is worthy to break the seals? There was, there was crying in heaven because no one was worthy. No one was worthy. Jesus is worthy. So Jesus is worthy to declare, to proclaim, to tell us, this is how you should live. This is how you should think. This is how you should believe. So that, that's, that's really our starting point. So getting into the text. The information that we take in is the first thing that I want to look at. And in verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, therefore, at, at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, therefore, after 11 chapters of theologically rich words to us to, to build the foundation of our thinking, of our living, he says, therefore, it tells us that God has words to say to us and that these words are important and worthy of reflecting back on. Saying that he appeals to us by the mercies of God is getting us to look back at what he already wrote, at the mercies that he has already spoken of. This sets a pattern of God providing words to his people to guide them. I, I think that we can just quickly pass over this. Therefore, you know, God gives us words. He gives us words to live by, and he's reminding us by saying, therefore, these words are for you. God has spoken. Don't pass that over. And this also sets the pattern of God's people relying on God's word to guide them. That's what he wants for us here. He wants us to see God has spoken. This is for you. You, therefore, you, therefore, remember the mercies of God. Reflect back. Think about what he has said. God is the only one who's able to determine what his people should look at as a source of guidance. God alone has the wisdom to create such a set of knowledge for us and the authority to decree that we look to it. Because God has spoken, we are called to pay attention to what he has said. Hebrews 2.1 says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And we do well to devote ourselves to studying and learning it and giving it the weight that it deserves. Scripture is perfect. So how do people mess this up? How do people lead us astray from the information that God has given us? And he has given us a lot of information. How do people direct us away? People direct us away from God's word by either diminishing the importance and relevance of the Bible or by exaggerating the importance of something else. So it's diminishing God's word or exalting something else. They will try to discredit scriptures or point us to something other than scripture. Either of these things can cause us to shift our focus away from scripture and keep us from following Romans 12, 1 through 2. But we've got to consider when we hear this, when, when we hear diminishing of God's word or directing us somewhere else, men lack the wisdom to create a reliable guide so that we can be good and acceptable to God. People are not that smart, and people are morally deficient. 
And even if any, any person created a guide for us to follow, they would lack the authority to require us to follow that. How do they, how do they seek to control us? When we follow man regarding the information that we should set as supreme or recognize as the supreme authority, we place ourselves under man's control rather than God's control. The second aspect that I want to look at is thought. So we have information. Now we're moving on to thought. Romans 12.2 says to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Your thinking is important. We get our information from, from Scripture, and Scripture is the Word of God. This command to have a renewed mind tells us that there is a way that is proper for us to think. And the previous statement in Romans 12, too, about not being conformed to the world tells us that there are improper ways of thinking. We need a renewal in our thinking. We need our mind to be renewed. We need a transformed mind to think God's thoughts after him. Since God is himself the standard for what is right, it is his prerogative to tell us what is appropriate for us to think on. Uh, Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. He has the right to say that renewing our minds means not conforming to worldly ideas, but filling our minds with his ideas. He has the right to state what is true and what is false. And he has the right to require us to hold to the true and to fill our minds with the true. We're to take in scripture and to fill our minds with it. We're to use it as a measure of all that is good and right and holy. We're to shape our worldview with Scripture and use His truth for how we interpret this world and what is right and what is wrong. His truth is perfect. How do men mess that up? People frequently set themselves above God's word contradicting, minimizing, and misinterpreting the truths of the Bible. And this is slightly different. You may think, this is exactly the same as what you said. No. What I was talking about before was information. What information we look to as authority. Now I'm talking about the contents, the, the actual words themselves, the, the, the truths that are contained in it. But they will contradict, minimize, and misinterpret the truths of the Bible. And that's, that's some of the ways that people elevate human standards for truth over God's standard for truth. This can draw us away from renewing our minds. If we're hearing, no, 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 that's not truth. This is truth. We can, we can veer over and be thinking, oh, okay, I'm going to renew my mind with that. That's not renewing your mind. No one except for God has the authority to declare what is true. No one is wise enough to figure out what is true apart from the working of his spirit. It's not man's prerogative to say that anything other than God's word is ultimate truth and that you should focus your mind on it rather than God's word. When we follow man regarding God's truth and what to focus our minds on, we place ourselves under man's control rather than under God's control. Third aspect. So we've had information, we've had behavior. Now, or uh, sorry, information, truth, and now we're going to look at behavior. Part of what it means to present your bodies as a living sacrifice is to bring your behavior in line with Scripture. We fill our minds with Scripture to know what God, ha God has said. We recognize Scripture as authoritative to tell us how we should live. And we live it out by bringing our behavior in line with Scripture. And do you see how these things build on each other? We start with information. Then we, start with, then we move on to thinking. And then we move from thinking to behavior. 
that's the pattern of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Just as God determines where we should get our information and what we should think, he determines what we should do and what we should not do. We have passages throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, where God commands our behavior. We have the Ten Commandments. We have, typically, if you look at any epistle, the first half or so of it is theological. The second half is very practical, and you, you encounter command after command after command of this is what you should be doing. We do not have a lack of God telling us how we should live. It's good and right for the one who is himself the standard of right and wrong to tell us what we should do and what we, what we should avoid doing. As we study scripture, we do well to look to be on the lookout for explicit commands of things that God requires of you. And if you open up your Bible and just read for 20 minutes, pick an epistle, you will find the command. We can ask ourselves when we hit an imperative, a command, an exhortation, we can ask ourselves how well Am I doing this thing that God has said that I should be doing? Am I even doing it at all? And if we aren't doing well with it, we can repent and we can ask the Holy Spirit to help us in obeying that command. His requirements for our behavior are perfect. How do men mess this up? People who are a hindrance to us presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice in the aspect of our behavior come up with shoulds and should nots that are not found in Scripture. Likewise, they point to the shoulds and should nots of Scripture and say, you don't have to do that. By following them rather than Scripture, we're offering ourselves as living sacrifices on their altars. Man has no authority to declare what is right and wrong apart from what God has said. It's fitting for man to submit himself to God's word and to agree with it. It is not fitting for man to create new moral imperatives for other men and then lay that burden on them. That was one of the main errors that Jesus just kept busting the Pharisees for. When we follow man regarding our behavior, we place ourselves under man's control rather than under, under God's control. You're going to see some repetition. How do we want to live? Do we want to live according to what man has said? Do we want to hear, take in those words that they say that we should be doing and then do that and ignore what God has said? When we do that, we're placing ourselves under the control of other men rather than under the control of God. The fourth thing that we want to look at is emotions. So we've had information, thinking, behavior, and now emotions. Another aspect of what it means to present your bodies as a living sacrifice is to bring your emotions in line with Scripture. And really, even if we didn't have the be transformed by the renewal of your mind, I would still look to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, and I would extract from that, God wants your thinking. <laughs> be a living sacrifice. How? In what aspect of my being? In all of it. All of it. What are you? What are you? You are a thinking, doing, feeling person. All of those aspects. So we, we don't need for him to say, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We already got that. Be a living sacrifice. Sacrifice your thinking. But he did say, right? So for our emotional aspect, that, that's part of just what it means to be human. And take that part of you, bring that in line with what God says to do and to be. He is concerned not just with our thinking, 
not just with our behavior. He is concerned with our emotional response to our living. That's part of what it means to be a living sacrifice. God alone has the right to state what our desires should be and how we should emotionally respond to them. He requires certain emotional responses from us, doesn't he? That sounds weird, but he does. Deuteronomy 28, 47 through 48. By the way, I think I've said this before. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. This, if you, if you get a, a, a handle on Deuteronomy 28, understanding and interpreting, interpreting Old Testament, it, it really helps make a lot of sense. This is in the blessings and the curses. He's about to tell them what he's going to curse them for. Because you did not serve the Lord your God it doesn't just stop there. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all these things. And he's talking about the blessings that he's going to pour out on them in the promised land. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. It's not just that you didn't do what God said. It's that you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. Your emotional being is made up of at least two pieces. Your emotions that we see on the surface and the desires that are underneath that fuel those emotions. And some of the basic emotions are sadness, fear, anger, surprise, happiness, disgust. And our emotions are very truthful. And I mean that sincerely. You may disagree with that. Hopefully I'll, I'll change your mind. Our emotions are truth tellers. They expose what is underneath, what our desires are. When our desires are aligned with recognizing good as good and evil and evil, evil as evil, our emotions will respond properly. When we're loving our brother and God blesses him in some way, our emotions respond with happiness. When we're not loving our brother well and God blesses him, our emotions respond a different way. They can respond with anger or sadness or disgust that that guy got a blessing and you didn't. Those emotions are telling the truth on you, right? Our emotions tell the truth about what's in our hearts. We do well to pay attention to them and ask them, ask them, what are you telling me? Like the psalmist, we can ask questions of our emotions. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Your emotions will tell the truth on you. God has determined what is good and right and lovely and what we should set our hearts on. We can go back to him with our desires, and that's what it tells the truth on. It tells the truth on your desires. If your emotions are doing one thing, and you shouldn't, you're like, well, I can't, I can't trust my heart. Well, you, you can kind of trust your heart to tell on you. And you can look at what is that desire, that improper desire that I'm having. Our emotional responses can help us determine what our desires actually are. God's requirements for our desires and emotions are perfect. So how do men mess this one up? For man to shift our emotional responses, he has to somehow convince us to set our desires, and that's where it is. It, it, it's, it's not about just your emotions. 
It's not just about your, your happiness or your anger. It's what's underneath. Somebody has to convince us to set our desires on something other than what God has shown us to be good. Man has to convince us to desire something that is less than, something that is lower, something that is less valuable from what God has shown us. And really, it's like convincing a child to live on a diet of ice cream and candy rather than to live on a diet of, of meat and vegetables. That's how we are sometimes, isn't it? Oh, do, do you want the broccoli? Or do you want the ice cream? But that's, that's how we are. Our appetites and our desires are sometimes too easy to co-op. But when, when, when they get resituated, we're always settling for something less than, something lower. We can be easily convinced out of presenting our bodies as living sacrifices by appeals to our desires and being manipulated emotionally. We can easily find ourselves in a place where God does not hold sway in our lives, but man does. Or we can numb our own emotional responses to our good and proper desires. Man has no right to dictate what another person should desire apart from what God has said. When we follow man regarding our desires and our emotional responses, we place ourselves under man's control rather than under God's control. Now, that's the first half. I think maybe that was the easy part. We're going to look at a few examples of how men distort what God has said and take the place of God and control people as a result. And really, that, this is the focus. Remember, remember what we're doing. We're looking at scripture. We're saying Romans 12, 1 and 2, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Be controlled by God, okay? That's what we want. Man has done a lot of stuff and twisted things around. And we can either live a life as living sacrifices to God and be God-controlled, or we can li listen to the influences of people and be people-controlled. So the first example is progressive or liberal politics, okay? What do they do? They demand that you think the way that they do regarding, and we I could, I could have come up with a long list, right? Regarding same-sex marriage, gender identity, climate change. You have to agree with them. But thinking their required thoughts, that's not enough, is it? It's not enough. They require action. If you don't sort your recyclables or use the right gender pronouns, or affirm same-sex marriage, you are a horrible person, right? You need to think the right way. You need to behave the right way. But that's not enough. That's not enough. You have to celebrate these things, right? You have to celebrate. They want to control you. And if they can't control you, they will cancel you. And that fear of cancellation is another tactic, and emotional manipulation to control you. They place themselves in the place of God to decide what is good and right and to require things from you. Do you see how this works? Most of us in this room probably don't subscribe to liberal politics or progressive politics. So this is, pretty, this is pretty easy. It's always easy when it's out there, right? When it comes up close, it's harder to see and it's more uncomfortable. So let's get uncomfortable. What about conservative politics? How about that? 
And I'm going to refrain from saying any party so that you don't think that I'm endorsing or bashing another party. But truth be told, I am really trying to point out the problems with both sides. Since we just looked at the progressive or liberal approach and said that that wasn't where we wanted to be, the major conservative party must be good and right. Right? Right? Part of being transformed by the renewal of your mind is breaking loyalties that are not in alignment with the kingdom of God. Luke 14, 26 says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and a wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What does that sound like? That sounds like being a living sacrifice. Are you committed to the conservative party? Do you think that the conservative party is the party to vote for. The truth is, they want to control you the same way that the progressive liberal party wants to, and really in the same way. But let's consider the conservative party and the candidates just for a minute. We want to bring our thoughts and emotions and behavior in line with Scripture. Scripturally speaking, what does the conservative party have going for them. They're pro-life, right? I've I've preached a sermon on this, so you know where I stand. I am pro-life. This is good. This is right. This is commendable, okay? This is probably... I want to say definitely. I can't think of another issue that's bigger than this, more important than this. This, this is the big issue right now. We're, we're talking about killing babies, right? This is a big issue. This is important. But does that standpoint sanctify the whole party? Does the fact that they are pro-life just wash everything else away? Does it make everything that they do okay? Does it make everything that any candidate does okay? I'm sure that there are a number of other conservative positions that we could could look at scripturally and say that they are more in line with the Bible than a more progressive or liberal position. But there are a number of positions that I can make a biblical argument for that are contrary to the positions that many conservatives hold, such as criminal prosecution, immigration, welfare, and if we want to get on the topic of campaign financing and term limits, I I think both parties completely miss that. I'm not saying to not vote for conservative candidates. I'm not saying to not support them financially. Given the importance of the abortion issue, voting for conservative candidates is the only reasonable choice many of us have. So I'm not poo-pooing voting for conservative people. But do you give unswerving allegiance to them without questioning whether they are right on issues other than abortion? And if you're upset that I'm questioning the conservative side of things, I would ask you to reflect back on what we just talked about with our emotions. And I would ask you to ask your emotions, why are you in turmoil, oh my soul? Are you upset with me? (laughs) Why are you upset? Is perhaps being politically conservative a sacred cow? And I'm just all I'm saying is let's think through the positive and negative points of both the major political parties in this country and try to evaluate them biblically.
where they're good and right. Let's say they're good and right. Where they're missing the mark. Let's say they're missing the mark. And let's call them to do better, <laughs> okay? Vote, vote, please vote. But let's call them to do better. Are you allowing man to control your thinking on politics rather than God? We must bring all of our thinking, all of our thinking back in line with Scripture. Well, that was an easy one. Let's bring it a little closer. What about our families? We recently heard Pastor Justin correctly say that children are to obey their parents. And we heard correctly that parents are not to provoke their children to anger. And I'm not, I'm not going to contradict Justin. I just want to elaborate and maybe take a slightly different perspective on Ephesians 6 and light up Romans 12. The topic of parenting. Such a great application of this passage. <clears throat> We parents, we can be a stumbling block to our children following this passage, can't we? We're talking about people influencing other people, right? We, we don't want to be an undue influence on our children to bring them out of line with following Scripture. This is going to be a caution to parents regarding what we tell our children and what we require of them. We set out rules for our children and tell them that they are required by God to obey, and that's correct. Especially when they're younger, training them to be unconditionally and immediately obedient is important. There are two aspects of this parent-child relationship that I want to focus on. First, I want to focus on what it is that we're requiring of them. And second, I want to focus on how we and they perceive what we tell them. Okay? And I'm, I'm going to start with the first and then move in chronological order to the second. Okay? First, what do we require of our children? Some things may be for their health, like eating their broccoli or washing their hands after using the bathroom. Some of them may be for their safety, like don't run out in the road. Some things may be spiritual, like we're going to church. All of those things are good, right? These are, these are good things. But how many of the things that we require of our children are to give a positive impression to others, regardless of what the reality is inside our house. Or to keep us as parents from being annoyed. Or to fuel our own selfish desires. And our children are required to obey. Remember, we want to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We want to think properly, right? But we also want them to think properly. But they may be obeying things that are focused on our ego and our comfort and our pleasure. Is this what God intended? Are we helping them to have a renewed mind? Are we helping them to live a life controlled by God's principles? Or are we being a hindrance? The cognitive dissonance that our children have to work through to obey us when we're being horrible to them can be astounding. It's like they had to say, God, Bless me as I help my parents to indulge in selfish, sinful behavior because that is what they are commanding me to do. 
Remember, parents, we're not to provoke our children to anger, right? Do you think that our children are rightly angry with us if we require things from them out of sinful and selfish desires? And if they express that anger to to us, what do we do? We punish them, perhaps for disrespect. And this just makes a vicious cycle, doesn't it? Parents, we need to bring our behavior under the lordship of Jesus in this area. We We need to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And we need to put our children in a position to put themselves under God's control rather than under our control. Yes, they should obey us, right? But let us give them good things to obey. We as parents can follow the example of Paul and appeal to them, appeal to them, urge them, beseech them, plead with them rather than dominate them. And I'm not saying that we should not have any rules or requirements for our children. We should, we should, we must, we must. We just need to be mindful of what we require of them and why. But the second point I wanted to make was how do we and our children perceive what we're telling them? How do we think about this? When, when we tell them, you must obey me. <laughs> do we all have the notion that whatever, whatever we require of our children is legitimate because God requires our children to obey? Is our focus on their obedience to us and making us happy rather than them obeying God by obeying us? And when we do bring God into it, do we hold it over them that they are required to obey us because God said so? Are we constraining their thoughts of what is right and wrong to what we want to be right rather than what God says is right? Are we parents living in a God-controlled manner? Are we helping our children to do the same? Again, I'm not saying don't tell your children what to do, what not to do. Don't set up house rules. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm just saying be careful. Be careful. That was another easy one, wasn't it? Pressing on. What about fundamentalist legalism? Back in October of last year, I dealt with the topic of legalism in my sermon on John 14, 15. We're, we're going to look at legalism again just through this perspective of Romans 12, 1 and 2. There are many different flavors and types of legalism, but um, I want to say first what legalism isn't, a couple of things. And then I'll describe the type that we'll be addressing. Legalism is not seeing something clearly in God's word and then committing to do what is clearly required of you. That is called obedience. Another thing that legalism is not is living by your convictions that are not clearly scriptural, but also not demanding that others share those convictions. The type of legalism that I'm going to talk about today, which is common among more fundamentalist groups, adds to scripture things that are not required of us, and then either explicitly stating that God requires this of us or implying that God requires this of us. So it's creating extra biblical rules for us to follow. And they usually, usually focus on appearance and behavior. Examples help. Over 20 years ago, one Sunday morning, Deborah and I, we were, um, we had a couple of 
visitors, my nephews, were visiting from out of town. And we went to a church that I mentioned earlier that has some culty attributes. I wanted to see the guest preacher that morning. He, um, he was very influential in my theological development. He was kind of a grandfather in the faith, if you will. He was towards the end of the sermon, and he said, I, I remember this clearly. I don't know if the memory is exact, but I remember this. He said, if you wear jeans to church, you're an abomination. My two nephews, visiting from out of town, I, I think they went to church off and on. I don't think they planned to be in church that morning, but they, I, I said, we're going to church, and they're like, okay, we'll, we'll go with you. I look over. They've got their jeans on. They've just been told by the guy in the pulpit, if you wear jeans to church, you are an abomination. I was beyond angry. That was the last time I set foot in that church building, and I assured the boys that they didn't do anything wrong, that God wasn't concerned with them wearing jeans to church. The preacher didn't appeal to Scripture. He did not state chapter and verse of what attire were commanded or forbidden in the corporate assembly. But he implied that this behavior was displeasing to the Lord by invoking the word abomination. One of the problems with legalism is that Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us that we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. If we're following someone else who tells us these extra biblical things that, that are about what is right, then we aren't doing what is holy and acceptable to God. We're doing what is holy and acceptable to man, right? Another problem with this kind of legalism is that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. If we're letting someone change how we think so that we're thinking less biblically, we're not being renewed in our mind. And what I gave you, it's, it's always easy when we talk about legalism. It's so easy to come up with a crazy example like I just gave you, right? And say, well, that's legalism. That's bad. We shouldn't do that. Those people that do that are bad. Well, what, what about maybe some preconceived notions that we may have that are not scriptural? that we impose on other people? What about styles of clothing? And yes, modesty matters. But be cautious about declaring absolutes. What about hairstyles? What about body ornamentation like makeup, tattoos, and piercings? What about certain genres of music, movies, or TV shows? And yes, we can have a discussion about the content of those and whether that is right and wrong, right? Alcohol, but lines do need to be drawn around drunkenness, right? And even just being, being a loving brother if you know somebody has an issue with that. Or smoking, although this one can be, just be deemed foolish for health concerns. And notice, notice I caveated most of those, most of, all of these things, all of these things are worth thinking about, thinking through, talking through, coming to a conviction for yourself, even though it's not a, this is a biblical command to do. It's good to come up with your own convictions around these things and stick to them. But it's a reminder that we can easily dictate our convictions on somebody else as having the weight of Scripture. If we're following extra biblical mandates, we're being controlled by a man rather than by God. If we're pushing people to follow our, our extra, extra biblical mandates, we're hindering them from following Romans 12, 1 and 2. All right, last one. 
What about Reformed thought? I'm thoroughly Reformed. I recently um, read back through the 1689. Reading through it, I was just like, yes, amen. This is good. This is right. When I read my Bible, that, that's what I think. I'm a full-fledged five-point Calvinist. Tulip. All five of them. But we need to ask ourselves, is your standard for truth determined by whether something lines up with Reformed theology and Reformed teachers? Is that your standard? Is that your standard? Or is it whether it lines up with Scripture? Now, I will be quick to say, I think they line up pretty well, right? But that's not the point. The point is, do you appeal more to reform doctrine than you do scripture? When you're trying to figure out, is this right or is this wrong, do you appeal to Bavink said this, or Calvin said that, or whatever? Or, or do, we, do we go to Scripture? Do we find chapter and verse? This is what God has said. Now, Reformed teachers, they can be a blessing. They can be a help. They can give clarification. They can, I believe, point us in the right direction. And they're usually trustworthy. But we... We need to trust God and his word. And yes, check them, check them, read, read the guys. I, I love Edwards, I love Owen, I love Bunyan. But are they saying things, am I, am I just taking it in and saying, well, yeah, this is a guy that I trust, I heard that he's reliable, or am I checking them against scripture? So the point is, whether you appeal more to the Reformed doctrine than chapter and verse, we, we want to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, even in our theology. And actually, we want to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, especially in our theology, right? So I'm not saying go burn your books. No, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping mine. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm still going to read Edwards. I'm still going to read Bunyan. I'm still going to read Owen. I'm still going to read Calvin. I got Burkhoff's dogmatics on my bookshelf. I'm going to still reference them. But it's as a help. It's not, these are the source of truth. These are a help. And God gave us teachers. Teachers are a gift to the church. But we check them against Scripture. I've called us to examine our whole lives against Scripture. And it can be uncomfortable, can't it? Do we, do we think this is easy? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. Is that easy? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Is, is that easy? Is it easy to take the things that are embedded in there that might not be right that you grew up with and be transformed and question it? Is that easy? No, it's hard. God didn't call us to an easy life. He called us to die to ourselves. Sometimes we may need to brutally evaluate our lives against Scripture and ditched, ditch preconceived notions that we may have. God, by His grace, doesn't leave us stuck and powerless to do what He calls us to do. He gave Jesus to die for our sins to bring us to life. 
He gave us the Holy Spirit to empower us to live in a holy and acceptable way. He has given us one another to walk together for help and for encouragement. And he has given us this table to strengthen us as we walk. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, you are good, you are gracious, you are merciful, you are loving. You've given us your word. You've told us what you require. And maybe too often we, we turn that around and we want to do our own thing. And we want to tell other people to do our own thing. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for that. I pray that you would cause our hearts and our minds to be drawn to Scripture. And I pray that you would help us to live lives that are living sacrifices for you. I pray that we would not turn a blind eye to anything as uncomfortable as it may be. Father, I pray that we would lay it all down. I pray that nothing would be something that we cling to. Father, I pray that you would bless this time as we come to your table. Father, we need grace. We need mercy. We need help to live the lives that you've called us to. Father, bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.